Welcome to Courting Cyber. I'm Carlisle, and in this podcast, I'm taking you on my journey as I seek to learn about the wonderful but challenging field of cybersecurity. I plan to release monthly episodes demonstrating my learning journey. So what I'll do is, I'll set up the mic as I read, watch videos and practice, then I'll record my thoughts about what I've just learned. This is going to be raw, so be prepared. However, if you hear an error I've made, let me know. I want to grow and all of the help is appreciated. I need your help. Now we're moving on to deploying endpoint protection systems on Linux. So for this exercise, we'll be looking at OSSEC or OSEC, which is an open source whole space intrusion prevention system. So this OSEC performs log analysis, integrity checking, Windows registry monitoring, rootkit detection, among other things. So I remember the last time I did practical exercises, I wasn't really speaking much, I didn't talk you through it. So hopefully I can do a bit better this time. I'll try not to only focus on getting the practical stuff done, but I'll see if I can, I guess, speak through it as well. So the first thing we'll be doing is installing the OSEC manager. The manager is a central control unit of the, of the OSEC ARC infrastructure. So here, all the logs, events, and integrity file databases are stored. After installing the server manager, we now need to set up the server for our environment. So the first thing we do is we find OSEC's configuration file. Then we go to the global section. And in this section, we look for the whitelist. Right, and we change the parameters. So we'll first of all um, whitelist the IP address of the server machine because we'll be deploying the, the OSEC agent um, there. So after this, we go to the syscheck section. Um, and this section is where file integrity checking is done. So within this section now, we, we, we set it to ensure that files that are changed quite quickly, so like three ed edits over a short period of time, are assumed as part of normal operations. So this would ensure we don't get a lot of false positive alerts. So I've just learned how to search a document using nano. <laughs> Control W, note to self. So now that we've finished setting up the manager, all right, we now need to install the agent on the server. So we've set up the manager on the desktop machine. We've whitelisted the server's IP address. We've also added an auto ignore option. Now we're going to install the agent on the server. So first of all, we're gonna SSH into the server machine and then do the operation there. It's quite similar to what we've done before, but instead of installing a server or a manager, we'll be installing the, the agent. Now we're going to set up the agent. So first of all, we're going to add the desktop machine's IP. That's where we've already installed the OSEC manager. And then we're going to configure the syscheck function to look for new files. It will alert when new files would have been created. And then we're going to specify which directories we're going to monitor. Now that we've set up the management server on the desktop and the agent on the server, right? Now we need to connect the agent to the server. Now I'm going to look at deploying Windows Server Protections. Within this section, we'll be looking at WAZUH, W-A-Z-U-H, which is 
an open source security platform which um, does threat detection, integrity monitoring, incident response, etc. Waza uses software agents which are quite lightweight on each host that needs to be monitored. Right? And this allows for near real-time communications with the manager. And these communications usually occur over encrypted and authenticated channels. It's quite important to note here that the channels are encrypted because even though you're monitoring for things, you need to be able to protect the communications between your agents and your central console or your manager. So it's quite nice to see that that's part of the features of the Wazel agent. So these agents are multi-platform, so this would help with compatibility issues. And some of the capabilities of Wazel agents are log and data collection, file integrity monitoring, rootkit, and malware detection. Now for DevOps security overview. The term DevOps comes from amalgamation of development and operations. So this is where software development and IT teams are combined um, to produce an automation pipeline between the two teams. Right? And this would allow for more efficient and a faster deployment of production. The fact that code needs to be developed means that security needs to play a role in the in the process so devops security is often called devsecops devsecops automates many repeating steps in the development process and it also integrates security so instead of the security team just focusing on vulnerabilities and insecure practices um, throughout an application devsecops ensures that every team that's part of the process contributes to the security of, of the applications. So this will ensure secure practices from the development stage all the way to the production environment. Traditionally, software development and operations were two different teams. But what is software development and what is operations? The software development team is responsible for delivering new features, for ensuring security patches and bug fixes. However, operations on the other hand would be responsible for keeping the application uptime percentage as high as possible right so you, the, the application needs to be available to users right so it keeps the application uptime as high as possible the uptime percentage as high as possible while deploying the latest code right? so this needs to be done simultaneously so this can be quite simple if you've got a small number of changes and where the code isn't changed a lot however when you've got a massive infrastructure you need to introduce more and more changes in the deployment process. Um, this process can become a bit more tricky and needs more expertise. There are still companies that would use the old way of developing an application and deploying it. So this is how this is what the old way is. First of all, you'd write big chunks of code for one release, and then after that's done, you'd have to test it, and this testing process can go on for months upon months. And then after testing is done, then you finally move the code to production. And the problem with this is um, it can result in you rushing the code to production, and when the code is rushed, you can have issues for the developers, the IT admins, and even the end users. The field of DevOps tries to get rid of this by creating an efficient and faster deployment to production. So the DevOps process tries to get rid of all this and will try to make the process as efficient as possible, which would lead to a faster deployment of the code to production. Some security considerations for DevOps. So for continuous deployment to productivity, 
um, the continuous integra- integration or continuous delivery server would need credentials, right? So that production system can be modified. So this means that any vulnerability in the server can leak these credentials. Another security consideration relates to proprietary code. So if you're writing code that you want to keep a secret, you need to ensure that any scanning tools that are being used do not leak build artifacts to a publicly available place because if it's publicly available, your, your code can be stolen. And the third one would, in terms of keeping the secrets needed. So for example, yeah, your production system may re- require secrets to run. So for example, TLS keys, um, passwords, or API tokens. So there needs to be a way to supply these to the production system without distributing them more widely than necessary. Right? So this means that you should not commit them to the source code repository. Now we're moving on to physical security. This should be obvious, but I guess sometimes it could be neglected. But it doesn't matter how good your firewalls are or how well designed your code is if the attacker can just walk into your facility. So physical considerations are really important in cybersecurity. If the attackers are allowed a certain level of physical access, this would make conventional non-physical hacking techniques much easier. Why is this? Because the attacker already has an initial entry point into the internal network. So they can skip a few stages of their attack um, attack chain or attack methodology once they already have a physical access. As is often the case in all aspects of security, it doesn't matter how expensive your controls are if your employees aren't trained. So the first thing to consider with physical controls is social engineering. So we need to ensure the employees are very well trained because it doesn't matter how expensive physical controls we erect if the employees just let um, attackers into or, or unauthorized persons into the building, then all the controls that we have in place is for naught. So training of employees is very, very important. One attack vector that uses a form of social engineering is tailgating. And tailgating occurs when someone walks behind, um, let's say, an employee to get into a restricted area. So the attacker doesn't have the authorization to access this particular area or facility. And they basically follow an employee into that controlled room or area. So this is, this is quite an effective and is one of the most effective physical control attack vectors. Because as humans, sometimes we... We just want to mind our own business and also we're cooperative and we don't want to have unnecessary conflicts, especially with a stranger. This is why this can be quite a powerful attack vector. Some measures that can be used to prevent tailgating. First of all, employees should be trained so they are security conscious and hopefully they're always aware, especially if they're working in restricted industries. Once an employee accesses an area, they should ensure that no one follows them in. Also. Um, technological controls can be implemented into the design of various entryways. So you can have a security man trap or revolving door which only lets one person in in at a time or makes it really uncomfortable for more than one person to get in and it will be very obvious that someone is trying to breach the security perimeter. Another social engineering technique which attacks physical security is called pretexting. The motto of this approach is the attacker just tries to look like they belong there. 
right? So they try to blend in as much as possible. And this works because the attackers would be exploiting various cognitive biases and contextual clues. So if I see someone looking like they should be in this office, especially if it's a large organization, I probably may not be curious or the unsuspecting employee will not be curious. And this is what pretexting exploits. For example, someone may put on a high-vis vest and pretend to be doing very important work. <laughs> and employees probably wouldn't be bothered a button eye if that high-vis vest plausibly belongs to that environment. Pretexting also exploits the human condition and the human desire to be cooperative and kind. So if we see someone is struggling, like you see someone with your hands filled and they're approaching a door where they need to swipe their badges, we'd most likely try to help the person by opening the door ourselves, right? So pretexting tries to exploit these kinds of behaviors. Now that we've dealt with the social engineering aspect, which should be counteracted significantly by user education, we now move on to facility security. Obviously, the facility needs to be designed in a secure manner because it makes no sense to train your employees to spot intruders or to prevent bad habits which would allow unauthorized persons into the building but yet you don't have the physical we don't have the facility security to back this up so now we look at some types of security measures that can be implemented firstly door security and the most obvious thing is not to install low quality locks that can be picked easily but then there is the other vulnerability that is often exploited in doors which are door gaps the three main types of attacks that will focus on door gaps would be on the door attack latch slipping rex sensor attack so this is how the under door attack works so usually on some doors you if you want to get into the building you need to use an rfid card to get in from outside however once you're inside you just use the latch or the door the door handle or the crash bar to get outside so now if there is a gap under the door there are tools <laughs> called like for example called the under the door tool which can be used to access the door opening mechanism the the handle or the crash bar or whatever which allows the attacker to open the door from outside to prevent this don't have any gaps under the doors the next door gap attack that we're gonna speak about is it's called latch slipping or credit carding what happens is the door has not been installed properly and the particular weakness that is exploited in this attack is that the dead latch plunger is not engaged. So because this plunger is not engaged, the attacker can simply use a tool that can manually push the latch back and open the door without using proper authentication. So doors need to be properly installed to prevent this attack. Another door gap attack is the REX sensor attack or request to exit sensor attack. A lot of doors have sensors that would detect if a person wants to leave the room and that would open automatically. However, if there's a gap in the door, attackers would spray a substance through the gap and once this substance passes in front of the REX sensor, it would mimic or the sensor would be tricked into thinking that an individual was there and the door would be opened. So once again, the door should be installed in such a manner to ensure that no gaps are there and also there are some really expensive sensors that are not fooled by this attack. Another form of facility security is electronic security. So most a lot of organizations are not using physical locks they're using RFID based electronic access control measures right and this is a good thing but these also have weaknesses so for example the type of rfid cards that should be used should be 
consider. So for example, low frequency cards aren't as popular anymore. However, even some of the more secure high frequency cards are insecure. For example, the HID iClass cards, which are quite popular, the master encryption key for these cards are known. So this means that anyone can clone the cards. Um, and this would mean your employees can be vulnerable to card cloning attacks, which means that and card cloning is where an attacker uses a long range card reader and would steal the employee's RFID credentials, which would give the, the attackers the same access that that particular employee would have. The secure, non-clonable, high-frequency RFID cards should be used. Next thing to consider on the electronic security is the card reader that is being used. So a lot of card readers use an insecure protocol, which is called Wygant. So if an attacker installs a, a sniffer on the card reader, they can be able to sniff and steal credentials of anyone who uses the card reader. So it's important to use um, card readers that have a more secure protocol, such as OSDP version 2, which means Open Supervised Device Protocol version 2. An important security measure to enable on your RFID readers is the tamper sensor. It comes off by default, but it should be enabled to give an extra layer of security. So the tamper sensor would give an alarm if someone tries to install a sniffer on the card reader. So this will prevent attackers from being able to install sniffers, which can then steal credentials of the users. It is very important to note the failure mode of your access control, of your electronic access control mechanisms. For example, is it fail safe or fail secure? So what this means is, if there's a power outage, what happens? Do all the doors just open or they remain closed, right? So if it's a fail safe mechanism, the doors would open and your attackers can exploit this. It's something you need to be aware of. Another aspect of a secure facility is the security of the data. And I guess a lot of times in cybersecurity, these would be the first type of things that would be considered. However, it should be part of a package of access control, um, physical access control mechanisms. So first of all, the obvious things you can start with is the principle of least privilege when it comes to access control. So everyone in your organization shouldn't have access to, for example, the server room. Only the persons who need to do the work within there should be allowed access there. Um, confidential data needs to be protected as well. So for example, printed documents um, that have confidential information within should be shredded to ensure it's not taken out of the building or it's not just dumped in its whole form where someone can dumpster dive to get access to it. Similarly, hard drives should be damaged or destroyed, wiped as well as well hardware destroyed before they're thrown away. And then also, Disks should be encrypted. It should be full disk encryption should be employed. So if for example if a disk is stolen, there'll be no way that the disk can be accessed without the proper credentials. Now that you've trained your staff and they're excellently trained, and you've also set up a top-notch secure facility, there's still something else you can do to add even more secure measures on your facility. You can employ surveillance. Right, to monitor the entire building because attackers don't want their identities known. One thing that can be done is you can use cameras, install at strategic locations and installed by professionals to ensure there are no blind spots as well. And these would monitor the building, I would say, around the clock as well. Also, it would be even better to have someone monitoring the cameras to ensure suspicious activities are flagged and escalated and addressed. 
Another surveillance technique is the monitoring of access control logs. So for example, if an employee has swiped into the building twice but hasn't left, this should raise an alarm and someone should be able to notice this, someone access it. Someone monitoring the access control logs should be able to, to monitor this because most likely the card would have may, might have been cloned and someone has accessed the, the building illegally. Additionally, if the tamper sensor that was set up on the RFID reader gives off an alarm, someone should be tasked with the responsibility of monitoring this and responding to it to ensure the, the security of the facility. Now I'm going to provide you with a layered security example. This example would be, would be very expensive and impractical to employ in a small business or most businesses properly. It will be applicable to a high security data center. Layer 1 secure perimeter so this is the outside of the building so you'd have anti-climb smart fencing which would prevent people from being able to climb the fences and it'd also be cameras there that would be overlapping to ensure there are no blind spots and these cameras would be <laughs> they would have night vision modes enabled to ensure the facility can be monitored in both daylight and nighttime conditions and then to get into the facility there would be a security gate where a guard would verify each visitor's identity. No one can get in there without the right permissions. And in case a vehicle tries to rush the perimeter, um, like for example at high speed, there would be crash bars there that would prevent this from happening. Layer 2, front desk. So this layer verifies the identity of anyone entering the building. So even though the employees would have their RFID badges, they'd be also required to use a biometric scanner. So for example, they can have their iris scanned to verify their identity. And this is so because it will prevent someone from just stealing the RFID card or cloning it and then getting access because there's the additional authentication method being used, which is the biometric scan. And also there should be a strict policy in place which ensures that each individual, each employee scans their badges as they enter doors. So even if you're walking in a group, everyone needs to scan their badges separately to ensure there is a record of everyone entering and leaving the building. I do, I do admit that this can be a very inconvenient for employees and it can be a bit annoying. However, it can prevent tailgating and instill that security conscious culture that you want to instill in your organization. So if anyone does anything different, it would, it would definitely be obvious that that person doesn't belong there or the person is trying to circumvent the controls in place and that should immediately raise a red flag. Layer 3, Security Operations Center. So this is where the facility is monitored 24-7. Right? So all of the cameras, all of the access control systems, data center, everything is just monitored from this location, from this center. What the Security Operations Center, the SOC would do is they would, in addition to monitoring cameras as I mentioned, they would make sure that access control system logs don't contain any anomalies so they can do this through locker relation tools. They can detect anything that's out of the ordinary such as RFID tamper sensor alarm goes off or if someone touches the electric fence, just to name a few. And this layer also helps to detect ongoing threats so that they can be responded to. And layer 4 is the data center floor. So this is the actual data center where the information is being kept. All of the previous controls I mentioned were there to protect anyone from getting to this point. However, there still should be protective measures in place in case someone somehow manages to get here. So there should be access controls to prevent anyone from getting access to the server room. All the disks in the 
data centers should be encrypted to protect the data just in case someone steals the, the disk from the server room. And also to ensure no one steals the disk, once you leave that area, you should have to pass through a metal detector, which is being monitored. And also there should be a data destruction area to help destroy data and disks in a manner that is secure and adheres to policy and would prevent confidential or protected information from getting out of the facility. Now we're moving on to an introduction to GRC, Governance, Risk and Compliance. Simply put, GRC is a strategy for the processes and practices that an organization must implement to meet business objectives. So this strategy can include monitoring and mitigating risks, tracking regulatory change, and also aligning policies and processes to ensure business goals are met. In a nutshell, everything that is being done in the cyberspace needs to be aligned, ensure business proceeds, ensure business happens to ensure the business objectives are met. There is no point in having any process or practice in security that doesn't align with the business objective because that'll be pointless. You would be hampering business instead of enabling it. And cybersecurity should be an enabling factor to business. You're protecting these assets because you want the business to go on. We're not just protecting them for the sake of protection. Some of the goals that a good GRC program aims to achieve within an organization are better allocation of resources. So if management gains all the necessary information, they would have a better understanding of the needs of their business. Right? So with this understanding and this and with this information, they can then allocate resources to the areas that would need them the most. And this will help them to choose the right direction in which the business can move forward. GRC helps to cut costs. So if there is spending being done on processes that are not helpful or in ways that are redundant a good grc program can help the management to see this and make the decisions to cut the right costs grc helps with less negative impact so this means that less time is wasted on staff carrying out unneeded procedures so this would help to improve the productivity of the organization there's nothing worse for the staff and for the business as a whole to be just doing activities that are pointless it doesn't make sense to be paying people to be working on things that don't add to the, I guess you can say, the bottom line of the business. A good GRC program would lead to greater information quality. So one of the things we referred to earlier was the better allocation of resources as a result of the information that was gathered. A good GRC program would lead to management being able to have high quality information and the better the quality of the information, the better decisions can be made. So therefore, good information equals good decisions and also good information would mean faster decisions as well because the decision makers won't have to sift through a lot of noise or low quality data. Now, let's break down GRC. So the first part is governance. Governance is how the overall company is managed at a higher level and includes things such as processes, mechanisms, and dynamics. So governance basically ensures that crucial management information reaches the corresponding teams in an accurate and timely manner to allow the best decisions to be made within those teams. So I guess you can think of it like the, the governance function would be like a central arm and then it would disseminate information to the, the wider nodes who would depend on information from the governance function to operate, um, to make decisions in a timely manner. But they need this information quite quickly and they need the information to be of the highest quality so that they can function correctly. Now on to the second part of GRC which is risk management. 
This step is when management identifies, analyzes, and reacts appropriately to risks found. Right? And this is done in alignment with the business objectives. I think in cybersecurity, we need to always remember this. Everything needs to be done in alignment with the business objectives. Risk management consists of addressing potential risks and threats. So you first need to be able to identify what's there that can affect or is relevant to your business. And then you need to develop and maintain controls to mitigate the risks that would have been identified. The third part of risk management is providing reasonable assurance that significant risks are managed in accordance with relevant and documented policies. And the final part of GRC is compliance. This is when an organization needs to abide by legal requirements of the jurisdiction or the jurisdiction in which they operate in. And these requirements can be laws, um, formal practices, internal policies, procedures, ethical standards, but it's a really important part that management make decisions that ensure that these requirements are complied with. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Courting Cyber. If you have an opportunity for me, or if you're in the same boat as I am, and you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing me at courtingcyber at protonmail.com. That's courtingcyber at protonmail.com, or on Twitter at courtingcyber. Oh, 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 oh,